uh, in, uh, just, I guess, not necessarily in fear, but they don't have the freedoms, Lord, that, that we have to do this. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And I, I pray we continue to uh, take hold of the opportunities that are in front of us to do that while we have those. God, I pray that you would just be with us here this morning, Lord, as we, um, we praise you, as we open up your word and learn more about you, Lord. May we... Thank you, praise team, for that awesome time of worship here this morning. Well, as we begin this morning, um, I want to open up by asking you a question. How many of you here like change? Um, I don't necessarily need to see a, a show of hands, and I don't have any scientific data to back this up, but I imagine that we're pretty evenly split between those that enjoy it and those that wish things would stay as they are. If you're in the, the first camp, the former camp, maybe you find yourself constantly wanting to upgrade something or to get on the wait list for the latest and greatest piece of technology that is coming out. Maybe you're constantly looking at how to change your home, right? how to remodel or, or redecorate a room. Maybe you fully embraced the new chat GPT and are looking forward to seeing how AI can help you streamline some of your work. If you're in the latter camp, maybe you found yourself being a little skeptical of the latest technology. Maybe you find yourself saying things like, man, they just don't make things the way that they used to. Or I wish we could just go back to the, to the good old days, then things would be all right. Now, while I could sympathize with that and, and maybe see a little validity to that, I think we could agree that not all change is bad. In fact, there are some changes that... If we had a choice, we would choose to never live without. All we have to do is go back and look at some of the groundbreaking inventions throughout history, right? Those new things that had never existed before that would impact our lives in a very unique way. Um, and I used one of those inventions. I used Google to do a quick search, and here's a list of what I found. Um, here's yeah, just several of these inventions. The printing press, electricity, and the electric light the automobile and the internal combustion engine, the telephone, the cell phone, uh, radio and television, and then color te television, uh, the computer and the internet, airplanes, gas-powered tractors, uh, penicillin, different advances in medical treatment and devices, and we could, I mean, we could go on and on and on this morning. Now, this list mentions a lot of things that we take for granted because most of us grew up with these inventions and they become so ingrained in our everyday lives. But there was a time when these things didn't exist and I'm sure some of you can remember maybe a time when some of these things didn't exist. Where someone had an idea, they planned it out, they, they tested it, maybe it failed, they redid it, retested it, maybe that failed, but they ultimately got to a point where they made it a reality. And again, I think we're glad that they did because most all of us here would probably choose not to go back to reality where some of these things did not exist. Well, as we look at our, our text here in Hebrews 8, we are going to be looking at this idea that not all change is bad, that ushering in something new can be a great thing. And in our case here this morning, it's more than just a great thing 
It's a necessary thing as we see Jesus ushering in this new and this better covenant. So please open up your Bibles this morning or your devices and turn to Hebrews 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 13, the whole chapter here this morning. Let's read that, Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. God, again, we come before you here this morning. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity that we have to be here and to open up your word, to speak it freely, Lord, and to hear what's inside. Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would give me clarity in my words here today. And Lord, I pray for, for the receiver here this morning, Lord, our church, Lord, just to be able to open up their hearts, Lord, to receive this message, Lord, to hear it and to be changed. Father, we thank you, we love you, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been paying attention, you know by now that Hebrews is a book that is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, to truly understand Hebrews, it requires us to have a basic knowledge of the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. That's the approach the writer took here, as he knew his audience of Jewish Christians would be well-versed in the Old Covenant. And so he brought that in as a means of comparison, but also as a way to show them what the law was pointing to. And so that's why there are so many quotes and stories from the Old Testament in this book. And with that said, I think it's also important to note that studying the Old Testament is just as important as studying the New Testament. Right, I say that because there's a thought out there today that the Old Testament is no longer needed, right? It's no longer useful and is somehow obsolete, right? In fact, they might say, just look at the New Testament. In fact, just look at what Jesus taught 
and that's it. No, Hebrews, more than any other, or more so than any other book, points out that the Bible is like a two-act play. And much like a two-act play without either act, it would be incomplete. Yes, each act has something to say and something to offer by itself, but it cannot stand on its own without the other act. The story would be incomplete. And this is the case with the Old and the New Testament, right? The Old points to the New, and the New is the fulfillment of the Old. And this is not my thought, but I've heard it said that the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament we have Jesus predicted, and then in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we have Jesus revealed, in the Acts of the Apostles, we have Jesus preached, in the Epistles, which includes Hebrews, we have Jesus explained, and in Revelation, we have Jesus expected. And so this is the entirety of Scripture. It's all important, and it's all relevant, because it all points to Jesus, right? The entirety of Scripture is one seamless story that is woven together in only a way that God can do. And so to get the whole picture, it takes both the Old and the New Testament, right? The Old Testament predicts it, the Gospels revealed it, the Acts preached it, the Epistles explained it, and in Revelation we have Jesus expected Well, the past couple of weeks, we've been in Hebrews, obviously, chapter 7, talking about the priestly order of Melchizedek and comparing Jesus with these earthly priests. And this is not an isolated thought. The book of Hebrews makes much of this priestly work of Jesus. We saw that in the previous several chapters, which also spoke of Jesus being our great high priest. Now, You may be sitting there wondering, why in the world is the writer of Hebrews taking so much time on this? We we get it. Well, you have to remember that these newly converted Christians, they were struggling. They were getting met with opposition from their former Jewish counterparts, asking them, why in the world are you leaving this God-ordained system of sacrifices, of priestly functions, and, and worship? And I'm sure they had some questions of, is this real? Is it worth it? Do we really have a high priest like this who is better than what we've been doing and what we've been experiencing? Well, the writer here, anticipating that there would probably be some questions, addresses that for us in in verses 1 and 2, saying, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So let's take a look then at these opening two verses. Looking at verse 1, we see that it reaches back into the previous chapter. He's talking about the points that we heard last week from Josh as to why Jesus is our great high priest. And here's some of the highlights. Jesus is a high priest who, as verse 24 says, is permanent. Verse 25 says, who always lives to make intercession for us. Verse 26, who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Verse 28, who is perfect forever. So this is the main point of what's been said so far in this book pointing out what an awesome and great high priest we have in Jesus. 
But then he adds to it with our passage here this morning. Notice in those first couple verses here, we see that Jesus is sitting. Right? In the old tabernacle and temple, there was no seat for the priest because his work was never done. After a sacrifice was complete, there was always another one to be made. Even the high priest, on the day of atonement, as he went into the Holy of Holies, offering the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant, wasn't able to sit down. There was no seat for him. The cover of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat, but this was no place for a man to sit. This seat was a place for God to meet with his people. And so after sprinkling the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, he immediately left and wasn't able to enter the Holy of Holies again for another year. This kind of reminds me of this summer, we had an opportunity to explore a place called the Thousand Islands in upstate New York. I don't know if you've ever been there, it's where Thousand Island dressing comes from, believe it or not. So, uh, but we took a little tour through a place called Alexandria Bay, and during this tour, we went under a portion of a bridge that connects New York to Ontario, Canada, and this bridge system spans roughly about eight and a half miles over the water there. And the bridge has a very unique kind of greenish teal color. And it was stated that the bridge has this color because they are very intentional about making sure that it is properly painted and maintained. In fact, they said it takes roughly seven years to paint one span completely. So you're thinking, okay, seven years, that's quite a long time, and you think they'd go and probably do something else after that, but when they finish, they turn right back around and start the process all over again, right? I don't know if you'd think that that's kind of defeating the purpose, but the job is seemingly never finished. Once they get it done, they turn around and have to redo the whole thing again, and so this was the same case with the priestly duties. The priests were always standing and and moving because of the continual work that needed to be done. But not so with Jesus here. We see that he is seated because of the finished work on the cross. And not only is he seated, but he's at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. He is permanently in the presence of God, seated interceding for us and holding the place of honor above all other priests. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus is at God's right hand and not at his left hand? I don't know, maybe that's something I've kind of thought about, or maybe it's something we've always just kind of read and really never understood. But as I was studying, I came across something that I think so beautifully articulates the the significance of why Jesus sits where he does. Back in those times, Israel had a supreme court that was known as the Sanhedrin. And much like our supreme court, they held the power of getting the ultimate final verdict in their court cases. And as they gathered, the members of the Sanhedrin would sit in a semicircle so that they could see each other while deliberating their cases. And on either side of this body stood two clerks, one on the left side and one on the right side. And their job was to take down and to tally the votes. And upon reaching a judgment, 
the Sanhedrin would announce its verdict through either one of the two clerks. If the verdict was guilty, the scribe on the left would declare the judgment of conviction and the individual would be sentenced and condemned. If the verdict was not guilty, the scribe on the right would declare that they are innocent and they are free to go. Do you see the significance here, right? Jesus is on the right side of God saying to him, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. He is free to go. Her debt has been paid. Awesome, right? Think about that whenever you hear Jesus being on the right hand of the throne of God. And again, this is not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. Jesus set himself apart from all other priests by doing something that no one before or after him could do. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Right? While other priests sacrificed animals, he sacrificed himself. And then he resurrected from the dead, conquering sin and death. And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in the true holy place. Verse 2 also uses the words uh, true tent to describe this heavenly throne where Jesus sits. And this obviously is done to contrast the tabernacle tent that was used as a place on earth for God to meet with and dwell among his people. The tent was fashioned and set up by human hands, right? But this true tent in heaven, it says, was set up by God and not man. So, Jesus is greater because no one can boast a better sacrifice than him, and no one can compare to the seat that he has in the true temple, right? This sanctuary, a sanctuary that is eternal And then the writer of Hebrews makes another observation in verse 4, saying that if Jesus was still on earth, he would not be a high priest or even a priest, and for that matter, at all, because they offer gifts according to the law. That's what it says. And so this is a reference to the fact that priests had to be a descendant of either Aaron or Levi, and Jesus was neither of these. But as the writer points out in verse 5, hey, that's okay Because these earthly standards are only a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So it's okay that Jesus wouldn't be an earthly priest because this isn't the ultimate thing. The earthly priesthood is just a copy of the real thing. Yes, the tabernacle, the objects of worship, and the Ark of the Covenant all had great meaning. But they weren't the point in and of themselves. They pointed to a heavenly reality, a reality where one day we would be in the full presence of God, worshiping him for all of eternity. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be getting to uh, Hebrews 9, 24, and this says, speaks to this, saying, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God On our behalf. And that's illustrated for us in the end of verse 5, where we see that Moses was given instructions by God to build the tabernacle. 
These plans coming from heaven itself, ensuring that the Israelites would have a place to meet with God that is an earthly copy of the heavenly temple. But this earthly copy had many limitations, one of which is that it could not fully contain God. King Solomon says this while dedicating the newly created temple in 2 Chronicles 6.18. He says, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So it cannot contain God because it is just a shadow of God's true holy place. right? Heaven where the fullness of his glory dwells. So the writer of Hebrews has been setting the stage here by contrasting the old with the new, distinguishing between the copy and the real thing, the Mosaic law and its promises with the fulfillment we see in Jesus with his new and better promises. And then in verse 6, He begins pointing to the new covenant, specifically to the superiority of this new covenant. And he writes this, But, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Again, that's the reality of what we're seeing here. Christ is better than the earthly priests. And because of that, he has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. And with this, he ushers in a new covenant with new and better promises. So, that idea of covenant. What is a covenant? Well, covenant can be defined as an agreement, or better stated, a promise, or maybe a collection of promises. I know when I was in college at Taylor, we had to sign something called a life together covenant. This was a collection of statements that students who lived on campus agreed to abide by in a pursuit to love God and to love their neighbor. And we, the idea was to do all of this with the goal of providing a healthy community where learning and fellowship could take place. We also see this idea of a covenant being a promise in marriage. I know during a wedding, this is especially the case as a man and a woman say their vows to one another. They are expressing their promise to each other and to God to stick together no matter what life may bring their way. They're saying they're done with their old life on their own and they're entering into a new covenant that they are pledging their lives to, right? Not just a season or until they don't feel like it anymore. No, this is a sacred covenant they make while both of them live together on this earth. Verse 7 then goes on to show the necessity of the new covenant. All right, it says, For the first covenant had been faultless, or sorry, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And that makes perfect sense here, right? If the old way of doing things was sufficient, then why would there need to be anything new? Don't rock the boat. Let's keep things going the way that they are. But as we've seen the last couple of weeks, we know that the old law was weak and ineffective to save us. It could not bring people to perfection. Right? That was just act one, needing an act two to complete the story. And I want to remind you that the law, 
while it was weak and ineffective, was not wrong. Right? God is not condemning or finding fault in the law. The Mosaic law was used as a way to show people right from wrong, to give them a pattern of, of sacrifice, of priesthood and worship, but it could ultimately not save us from our sins. It could not make us perfect. It only pointed to the fact that we are sinners who break God's law over and over and over again. And that's where the fault is found in this old covenant. It's not found in the law, it's found in us, right? We're at fault. Verse 8 says, for he finds fault with them. Verse 9, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them. God is putting the blame for the failure of the first covenant directly where it needs to go on us, sinful humanity. One commentator says this, the old covenant was faulty because it did not provide for enabling the people to live up to the terms or conditions of it. It was faulty inasmuch as it did not sufficiently provide against their faultiness. So the law said, do this and do that, but it did nothing to address the issues of our faulty hearts. And so God establishes a new covenant in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 8 again as he quotes the Lord saying, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I love what the writer of Hebrews does here. He's, he's quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, showing these Jewish Christians that this idea of a new covenant is not a new idea. This was given to the, to the prophet to show what was coming here. And now we see the fulfillment of that promise in the person of Jesus. Right? He's using the Old Testament to point to the fact that this was something that they were looking forward to and that it's now here. And so what is this new covenant, as verse 13 says, that makes the first one obsolete? Well, let's look at and read Luke 22. You may turn there. Luke 22, we're going to read verses 14 through 20. This is Jesus in his final hours here meeting with his disciples in the upper room. Luke twenty-two fourteen through 20, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to him, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. Or sorry, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We have a new covenant because of the blood of Christ, right? I want you to put that in your pocket and bring that back with you next week as we partake in communion, right? That's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating this new covenant because of the blood of 
Christ. And, and here's why. Because we have sinned, we have become tainted and stained, unclean, unable to come before the presence of a pure and holy God. And so we need to be purified and forgiven. To do this, God demands that there be a shedding of blood. Right? Something has to die. And the Old Covenant temporarily remedied that by the spilling of the blood of an animal to purify us from our sins. The New Covenant, however, is ushered in by the blood of Christ spilled on our behalf for the fullness of our sins. Right? A per- permanent sacrifice that cleanses us, not just temporarily, once and for all time. And with this covenant, Jesus ushered in then these new and better promises, promises that were not just about imitation, right? Do this or do that and you'll be fine. No, it was a promise of a total transformation of the heart and the mind. And we see this first in verse 10 where God promises, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so we see here that this new covenant is not about getting rid of the law. Yes, the old covenant is gone and now made obsolete, but God's holy and righteous law still remains. But instead of it being this external reality, these laws in the new covenant are now put into our hearts and into our minds. Jesus is changing the way that we think. It's not just about the external act, but now it's about what's going on in the heart. And Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 5, 27 through 28, when he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says the same thing about murder. You didn't commit murder, well, great, but if you have anger towards someone, you've already come into judgment as well. So this new covenant is not just about the act. Jesus is ushering in a ministry now that is aimed at your heart. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, our hearts were darkened, and what became natural to us now was to sin. All right, we know that that's the human condition. Our hearts and our minds are, are prone towards disobedience and, and waywardness. And because of this, God gave the law. Right? Galatians 3.19 says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Right? I just repeat that. We, we needed to know what was right and what was wrong. And I think it's interesting that when God gave his law to Moses on Mount Sinai, it was written on stone tablets, right? Think about the significance of that. Stone representing something that is kind of cold, hard, almost crushing. It did nothing for the heart, but only revealed where we fall short. Paul speaks to that in Romans 7, 9, saying, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. So God revealed his law, showing us that we are in desperate need of someone 
to save us because we cannot save ourselves. But all this changed when Jesus came to earth, right? Jesus is the law of God in the flesh. Remember what he said in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he did that. The only one who has ever lived a perfect, sinless life. How could he do that? Because he's God. He acts according to his nature. The law is written on his heart. And this promise this morning is for those who love the Lord. That God is not just changing the external, but the internal. He's putting his laws, his very nature, on your heart and in your mind. Thinking about that, I had to think of Romans 12 too when studying this that says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in Christ, we find not just a duty to begrudgingly follow the letter of the law, but we now take joy in following him, and echo what David says in Psalm 40, verse 8, that says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And this doesn't mean that we're going to get it right every time. No, it means that God takes our perfect standing before him and allows us to live now out of a transformed heart, imperfectly, but forgiven as we are becoming more and more like Jesus as we walk with him. John MacArthur says this, The old covenant said, Be like the Mosaic law, and when you can't, you know you're a sinner who needs a Savior. The new covenant says, Be like Christ, and when you can't, you know you need a Savior. Right? They both point to the fact that we need a Savior, but the old covenant had no remedy. We are living in the new, and we have the remedy, right? We have access to the Savior. And verse 12 reveals an additional promise that is given in this new covenant because of the Savior. The writer writes, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Praise God for giving us the once and for all sacrifice through Christ Something so different than the old covenant, but so necessary because our hearts are prone to wonder. Even when Jesus says, follow me, we do that, but with all kinds of failures and mistakes. But that's why this new covenant is so amazing, because our sins are forgiven forever, and it says that he remembers them no more. When closing today, I want to ask you, are you seeking the things that are external only? Those things that make you look righteous or religious, that give you praise from man and and make you look good. If you are, maybe you've been feeling that something is not quite right. Maybe a, a burden of sin or a conscience that is full of guilt. And I would say that's because you haven't dealt with what's on the inside. Right? 
I encourage you, don't be like the old covenant. Don't believe you'll be okay because you show all the right things. Yes, those things may be good, but they're faulty. We, we just heard about that. They won't save you by themselves. God is inviting a change into your life. Don't be afraid of that change. Right? Into this new covenant, one that is about transformation on the inside. One that is marked by a change of the law that God has put into your heart and into your mind. That you may delight in it and follow it and that you may have your sins forgiven completely and made righteous before God. I pray that we all embrace that today. Let's pray. God, I thank you again just so much for this morning. Father, I thank you for this text that we see here in Hebrews 8, Father, that you are our great high priest, the one who no one else can boast of a better sacrifice. No one else can boast of a better seat in your Father's heavenly temple, Father, throughout all of eternity. God, we thank you so much for that, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, down to this earth to live a perfect, sinless life for our sins, Lord, who went to the cross on our behalf and who rose again victorious over sin and death and who does seat, or who do, whose seat is now at, at the right hand of the throne of you, Father. And God, I thank you for that and for ushering in this new covenant of Christ's broken body and, and the blood that was spilled on our behalf. A blood that does not have to continuously be spilled over and over again, but that was done once and for all. Father, I pray too, Lord, and thank you for those here who have embraced that truth, Lord, who have made your Son the, their Lord and Master of their lives, Father. Lord, those that have done that, Lord, you, it says you have put your law into their hearts and their minds, and you have forgiven them of their sins forever completely. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that here this morning. And God, I want to pray for those, Lord, who have never done that. Lord, for those who maybe are just trying to do all the things that this world says is, is right and good, and maybe who are just trying to follow the letter of the law on the external only, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would grab a hold of them this morning and show them it's about this internal transformation, Lord about giving their heart and their mind, their soul, everything to you, Father God. So, Lord, we thank you for that and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.